Well, when I came up here the, after during first service, there was a picture of me up here in black leather pants with a mohawk. <laughs> uh, there are sundry items of Christian liberties that one might engage in for the glory of God. <laughs> And uh, as you know, we're taking a break from our time in Luke to discuss uh, Christian liberties. And this was all brought about by the typical once a year Halloween thing. What do you what do you do at Halloween? And uh, every year we try and have this big discussion about what we're going to do and what we're going to allow. And even though we don't want to regulate people's consciences as leaders, we have to decide what Calvary Bible Church is going to do and what we're going to support and and there's a there's a huge variety of responses to and you know Halloween is an example of just one of many things. You know, some people say, well, you know, what's the big deal? Your kids dress up and you know go get some candy. I mean, that's pretty harmless. It's not pagan worship. Um, other people say, well, you know, why would you want to take your children out and march them in front of a bunch of ghouls and goblins and participate in, in a holiday that has pagan roots and just really is the, you know, the, the day for the occult of the year? Why, w- why would you even want to do that? And other people say, well, you know what, what's wrong with just uh, an alternate day? Let's just do an alternate day. Let's just, you know, have a day where, you know, we call it Harvest Day or Reformation Day and, you know, have fun anyways, do candy and kind of parallel the world in the more wholesome things. And what's wrong with that? And then some people say, well, why would you want to sanctify a pagan holiday? Why, Why would you want to even mimic that, that thing that God hates? Why would you, what is, why is it so important that you have fun, that you would risk your reputation in the community by trying to adapt a pagan holiday into something Christian? Then other people say, well, why even bother? Why just, why just ignore the whole day and just continue on as normal and not do anything? And that way, you know, we won't be participating. We won't be causing a stumbling block and we can just forget it and just celebrate another day. And so there are these wide variety of convictions about Halloween. And you know what? There's a wide variety about convictions about a lot of other things. And so what we're doing is we're taking some time out from our exposition of Luke to just talk about this issue. How are we to exercise our Christian liberties? And we define Christian liberties as those things not specifically forbidden in the word of God, but things that... Either the culture or unbelievers or some Christians may feel are wrong. There's kind of differing views about whether or not it's acceptable behavior. But from the scriptures, it's clearly not forbidden. And we started off by looking at motivations. What is to motivate a Christian? And some of you thought, you know, I thought this motivation thing was kind of strange. And uh, This is where it all meets the road. And you'll see even more this morning as we look at some more scriptures, how motives are really everything. When it comes to Christian liberties, how you live your life and why you live your life is really where it all comes down. So we looked at the first uh, uh, five of six different motivations that pretty much encompass everything we do as believers and the first is the glory of God. This is the all-encompassing motivation. Everything you do is to be done for God's glory. Secondly, there are biblical mandates. That is, there are specific commands in the Bible directed at Christians that tell us to do or not do certain things. And anybody who loves the Lord will want to obey and submit to biblical mandates. This is, is clear. One step removed from that are biblical principles. Biblical principles are things which are implied in the text in both Old Testament and New Testament. Things that are derived, principles derived from the character and nature of the unchanging God that we serve. And as believers, since we love God, we are to also submit ourselves to clear biblical principle. A little bit less clear is personal convictions. 
Personal convictions vary because personal convictions are self-imposed rules or regulations that you place on your life because you know, you know you're weak in an area or you know your background or you know the goal you have set for your life or whatever it is. It's a good thing. It may be based off a biblical principle, but it's something you've decided to do because you have certain goals, certain convictions, certain things you want to strive for. And so you create personal convictions to regulate your life and all four of these motivations are good and every christian should have them that there's the problem the problem is this not everybody knows the bible really well some know it better than the others not everyone has the same training in interpreting the bible not everybody is the same age in the Lord and as some have not been exposed to good teaching as long as other people. And even among those who may be in the same church and maybe about to not everybody sees the same principles being taught in the same texts. And what this amounts to is I may see things in the Bible that to me are just cut and dried, but to you they aren't. I may see certain biblical principles in the text and you may not. You may be able to do things in your life that I would never do. And so here we all are, a bunch of believers at different levels of growth, at different levels of spiritual maturity, different levels of training, different levels of understanding of the word of God. And so now we have to live together in an understanding way in unity, though we have all of these varying convictions and liberties. And that is why the New Testament spends so much time, and and we're going to get to it this morning, we're going to look at four different chapters of the New Testament, which are all devoted to this single issue. It is a huge issue. But before we do that, we also talked about the dark side of what motivates believers. And this is the fifth thing, which also which usually comes from personal convictions run amok. And that is legalism. Legalism, we discussed, comes in three primary forms. First, thinking you can be saved or justified before God by your works. That your works can somehow save you or make you right before God. This is a heresy. It is a damning doctrine. It is a form of legalism. Secondly, there's another form of legalism, which is going through the motions of Christianity. Maybe even obeying God's word, obeying it precisely from from a clear understanding of the scriptures, but not doing it out of love or devotion to God. Just practicing cold, dead orthodoxy. You know, you come to church, sit in your same pew, stand up when they say, mouth the words of the song while you're thinking of cleaning your your kitchen. You know, sit down when you're supposed to sit down. Somebody comes up, reads a scripture. You kind of zone out, think about something else. Stand up again, sing another song. Sit down, offering plate comes in, put in the same amount of money you always have. You know. Real exciting, dead, orthodoxy, legalism. That's a form of legalism. Just going through the motions, going through the same routine that you've learned and you've become accustomed to, and that's the way you do it. But there's no love there. There's no passion for God there. There's no pursuit of holiness and pursuit to try and excel still more in the things of God. It's just deadness. And then third, there's a third expression of legalism, and that is, is when you elevate your personal convictions to the same authority as scripture. That's when I have come to believe that something is good for me. And then I start telling you, you have to do the same thing I've decided on. And if you don't, you're sinning. Now I have elevated my personal conviction to the same authority as the word of God. And this, too, is a form of legalism. And all three of these forms of legalism are sinful. They all should be avoided. But the last one especially is what intersects with Christian liberties the most. When there are people in the church who have no biblical reason for holding the convictions they do, Or if they do, maybe they have a verse or two that they think about when they don't do certain things. 
And yet they've never even studied those verses in their context. They don't even know where those verses are. Or maybe, you know, they have uh, this verse and they can tell you where it's at, but that's still there. Listen, I grew up and my mom told me that playing cards was evil. And so if you play cards, you're evil. You know, when I grew up, I was told that Christians are not supposed to smoke or drink. And hey, if you smoke or drink, you're sinning. And even though you don't know why, you've just been told that from somebody else. And so to you, it's sin. And if if, if you, you, somebody else does it, it's sin to you. Okay. So those are some examples. But then there's one more motivation, motivating factor, which would be listed under the dark motivations that even every Christian has to deal with. Even godly Christians have to deal with. And that is just lust and selfishness, selfish desire. I don't care how godly you are. You have to deal with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Selfishness. It's just a constant battle. Now picture in your mind a circle. And that circle represents you. Selfish desire is like this. All the arrows in your life are all pointing towards you. And every one of those arrows represents a certain sin. Lust. Greed, covetousness, lust for power, lust for pleasure, lust for attention, lust for fame, whatever it is, all sins are self-serving. The reason we sin is because of what we can get out of it. Sin wouldn't be tempting if we didn't get something out of it. I mean, who lusts to smash their thumb with a hammer? You don't lust for that. You lust for pleasure, power, fame, control, whatever it be. You lust for the pleasure of hurting somebody, whatever it is. It's all selfish. It's all pointing in towards you, I, me, my, what you want. Now, when it comes to being a Christian, though, we are to live for the glory of God. We are to love God. And love our neighbors, which is how we express love to God directly by worshiping him directly and how we express love to God indirectly by loving other people. Think of the circle again. This is the Christian circle. All the arrows are going out. You live your life thinking about what God wants. How to worship God, how to love God, how to love other people, how to obey his word, how other people feel, how other people think, what their conscience might dictate. All around the circle, everything's going out because you're always thinking of other people. That is love. That is living like the scriptures teach you to live. We all know the classic definition of love from 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient and love is kind. It is not jealous. It is not provoked. It does not act unbecomingly. All of those things, it goes on and on. All of those things describe things you do, actions you perform in relationship to what's good or best for other people. Not self. Does not seek its own. So if you are seeking your own, you're not what? Loving. That's just how it is. That's just how it is. The loving person, the person who loves God's is outward focused, other focused. And I always want you to know, side note for parents here, you have to teach your children this. Children do not learn this automatically. They're born with all the arrows going in. And you have to, one by one, turn all those arrows in the other direction. Why don't we litter? It's not because of the law of the land, although that's reason enough. It's because we think of others. Why don't we um, run through the church yelling and screaming and dodging in and out of, you know, senior citizens on canes? Because <laughs> we're thinking of others. Why don't we scream and yell in the yard late at night? Because we're thinking of others. Why do we serve in church? Others. Why do we give to the church? Others. And you know what? In every one of those instances, you could replace that word others with love. Love. Thinking of others. Thinking of others. That's what love is. The Christian who loves is the Christian who is always thinking about others. What is best for them? What is good for them? What will help them? What will edify them? Paul said this in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Nothing 
But what are you supposed to do? But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That is just another definition of love right there. Living in a sense of otherness. Not self. In Romans 15, 1 through 3, Paul gives another definition of love. Now we who are strong, that is strong in the faith, mature godly Christians who understand our liberties, ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. And not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. That's what all of us are to do. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. I mean, Christ didn't come to be pleased. As Mark 10:45 says, he came to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came not to be served, but to be a sacrifice for our sins, to receive the reproaches due us. That is love. That is love. These kind of principles are to guard our lives all the time. They are to be our defining thoughts before we exercise a liberty. So hopefully by now you see how selfish ambition and lust really collide, don't they? With Christian liberties exercised in love. Because when it gets down to it, you know, let's just say, you know, you want to smoke a cigar. Okay, you just, you just love to just be out there smoking a cigar and having a donut <laughs> after service today. You've got that thing in your inside coat pocket, that big green baby, and you just want to lick that baby down and just light up and have a Krispy Kreme. <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, should I do this or not? I've got my liberties in Christ. I've got my freedoms. I mean, hey, it's just a cigar. I'm not going to inhale. <laughs> and see, now you have to... Ask yourself, okay, I I may have this liberty, but the question is this. I need to think about the Lord and I need to think about others as more important than myself. Mm. Do you think there's any chance somebody might be offended by that? Yeah. What happens? Keep that baby inside. You go in your bathroom at home and smoke it. (laughs) So no one knows. So you're thinking, I have this freedom. The question is, are you using your freedom merely for self? And I'm telling you, most people that I've ever talked to who are out of the norm, breaking outside, uh, pushing their liberties in Christ, you know what they're thinking about? Their self. Hey, I can do this. This is what I want. This makes me feel good. Hey, I like this. And you know what I don't see in their life? is a sense of otherness, a sense of love. And you know what? When you aren't loving, you know what you're doing? Sinning. You're sinning. Now you're out there and you're thinking, well, Jack, how can it be a Christian liberty, something not forbidden in the word of God, and yet be a sin if it's a liberty? That's kind of a paradox. No, it is a paradox. And this is why we're here this morning. Because I want to take you through four chapters of the New Testament. And believe it or not, we're going to do it. We did the first service. Romans chapter 14. Turn there. This is where we're going to start. Just to get a, big, a little bit of background, we're going to kind of just do a quick running commentary. These passages point out some key features. We're going to go a little bit slower through Romans. And then we're really going to race through 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. But in this chapter, the Apostle Paul is addressing how to exercise our Christian liberties. Now, you know, for us, um, you know, just blatant idolatry and paganism um, is something that, you know, a lot of people aren't real familiar with, although our country is becoming more and more that way. But uh, these people in Rome had backgrounds in, you know, Paganism, idolatry, drunken orgies, the worship of the Greek god, you know, Bacchus, where they used to just drink wine until they, you know, threw up. 
There were others who were um, involved in all sorts of immorality and just things that were wretched and vile and wrong. And they came out of this paganism, repented of this paganism. And in their mind, they didn't want to have anything to do with that anymore. That was it for them. And so in Romans 14, Paul addresses several examples of Christian liberties in order to teach us some principles about how to exercise our liberties in a pagan culture, in a culture just like ours. The entire chapter is devoted to this one issue, which tells us a lot. When you combine that with the other three chapters of Corinthians and combine that with all the other verses in the New Testament, you realize that this one topic has more information addressed to it than the resurrection. Think about that. Big doctrines, huge chapters, whole chapters devoted to it. It's a big deal to God. Now, before we look at Romans 14, I just want to remind you of a text just to kind of get ready for Romans 14. Remember when we were studying in 1 Timothy chapter 4, it talked about there were those who um, uh, the, in the latter times come and they pen, pay attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. It talks about them as men who forbid two different things, marriage and the abstaining from certain foods. And when he talks about that, he's saying that these False teachers who are teaching the doctrine of demons. Let me give you two examples. People who say that being married or not being married is more holy or what you eat or what you don't eat makes you holy. He says, no, that's not true. Those are doctrines of demons. And he goes on to say, you could eat anything you want. There's nothing unclean anymore as long as it's received with thanks. Okay, this is a New Testament teaching the the laws of the clean and the unclean Leviticus 11 have been done away with. Nothing is unclean. You can eat, you can drink anything you want. And anybody who tells you that eating or drinking something in and of itself is sin, that person is teaching, according to first Timothy four, a doctrine of demons. Now. That does not mean that you can get drunk because that is specifically forbidden or that you, you can engage in gluttony, which is specifically forbidden. What I'm saying is, is if it falls under the realm of liberty, no specific command in the Bible, you can do it. It's fine. And if somebody tries to place you under something command that's outside of scripture saying you can be right before God if you do or don't do these things... Uh, that's wrong. That's wrong. Okay. Keep that in mind. Romans 14. Look at verse one. Now accept the one who's weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. The person Paul is, that Paul is talking of here, this weak person doesn't understand their freedoms in Christ. They, they don't understand. They don't know that much about the Bible. And so they don't know as much as you do. Their faith is weak because it isn't informed by the scriptures and paul just says don't pass judgment on them look at verse two one person has faith he may eat all things but he was weak eats only vegetables i used to uh we had this guy living with us and we had this basement he had his his uh weight set in our basement and he'd get up at 5 a.m and lift weights and for a while he wasn't eating uh, any meat he was trying this vegetarian thing so i put on the ceiling right above his the bench press he who is weak eats only vegetables um but he was he he didn't have us he was just trying it out to see what it was like but um the whole point here is some people think that eating meat's wrong okay for whatever reason you know so okay somebody is weak in the faith they don't understand the scriptures they think you know vegetables are the better way to go fine Verse 3, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. You want to be a vegetarian? Fine. You want to be a meat eater only? Fine. Look at verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Key principle number one, don't judge others because they abstain from exercising certain liberties, even if their reasons are wrong. 
Look at verse 5. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Here's another one. Listen. Paul says, okay, let's set this food thing aside now. Let's talk about certain days. The day you worship. The day you observe to the Lord. You want to worship on Sunday? Fine. Saturday? Fine. Tuesdays and Thursdays? Fine. The rest of the week? Fine. You know what? The Bible doesn't say we have to worship on a certain day. You worship any day you want. Now, for our convenience, because history and culture, most Christians have worshiped on Sunday. There's a couple of texts in this New Testament that talk about believers worshiping on Sunday, the first day of the week. But you know, it's never commanded. And there is a great difference between biblical precept and biblical description. Sometimes there, the Bible prescribes certain things. Other times it describes certain things. When the Bible describes something, that is not a prescription. It's just saying this happened. So it happened. And since the church has worshipped on Sunday for so long, most of us have Sunday off. And since we are to gather together with the rest of the saints, we all have to decide what day we're going to worship. And Sunday's the best day, and so here we are. But don't think it's a biblical command. It's not. Notice, since the Bible doesn't tell us what day or days we are to worship, what is the regulating principle? Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, you decide for yourself what day you are going to gather together with other saints in order to worship the Lord, edify each other, and all the things we do. As when we get together, look at verse six, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. He who eats not for the Lord does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. Verse eight, for if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Another principle. Number two, whatever Christian liberties we decide to exercise or not exercise, we are to do it. For the Lord, not for self, but for God's glory. Look at verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Are you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? And again, he's speaking of Christian liberties here. For we all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore in relationship to Christian liberties. Of course, there's other texts which command us to judge each other when it comes to the violation of biblical mandate, but not liberties. Notice that in the areas of Christian liberties, we are not to judge. And Paul is speaking to the church in general, but specifically to those who are strong in faith. You know the Bible. You know what the Bible allows or doesn't allow. You don't go judging somebody else because they don't know what you know or because they think something's a sin when it's not. Look at the middle of verse 13, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Notice how Paul has switched from, yeah, you have your liberties. Yeah, you can do what you want to. Now you better be thinking about other people. You better not be putting a stumbling block in their way. This word stumbling block just means that a stone of stumbling. You know, have you ever been on inline skates or roller skates or a skateboard and you're cruising down the road and all of a sudden you hit a little pebble? What happens? Face. Okay. That's the whole point. You, you, you get a stumbling block. There's something put in your way and it trips you up. And so you determine this Christians. Never use any Christian liberty that's going to trip somebody up in their walk with the Lord. Even if it's okay, according to the scriptures. Don't do it in front of them so you hinder their walk with the Lord. So here's the principle. Don't put a stumbling block in someone else's way. In other words, quit thinking about yourself and think about other people. In other words, love. Look at verse 14. I know. 
and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean to him, it is unclean. Notice what Paul says here. Every time he does this, listen, the laws of the clean and the unclean have been done away with. (laughs) I know that I'm an apostle. Um, But to the person who thinks certain things are unclean to that person, they're unclean. And you better remember that before you exercise that liberty. Think of that other person and what they think, not what you want. Principle number four, if someone doesn't know the truth and thinks something is unclean to them, it is unclean. Keep that in mind. Look at verse 15. For if because of food, your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Now, there is the bingo sign should come on. Did you see that right at the end or right in the middle there? You are no longer walking according to love if you exercise in this example is food you eat some sort of food that somebody else thinks you shouldn't be eating you know somebody comes out of a jewish background they haven't learned about that the dietary laws are set aside their conscience is still tender towards certain things you don't invite them over and say hey you want a ham sandwich (laughs) you've defiled their conscience now you know you can eat a ham sandwich and you know the bible doesn't forbid that and now you're freeing christ to do it well don't do it to their harm That is not a loving thing to do. Don't be selfish and self-serving and exercising your liberties to the point where you harm somebody else. Look at verse 16. Therefore, do not let what is a good thing be spoken of a good. uh, What for you is a good thing be spoken of as evil. Now, what does Paul mean by this? It's this. And you know, you can eat the ham sandwich. It's a good thing for you. You love them. But listen, if you ever have a liberty and you know it's fine and it is fine and you use that liberty and it hinders somebody else's walk with the Lord, you have now sinned against that person and you've sinned against Christ. And now that good thing for you has become an evil. Sixth principle, don't destroy someone else by exercising your liberties or encouraging them to exercise their liberties contrary to what their conscience will permit. So don't let what is a good thing for you be spoken of by as evil by exercising it in an inappropriate way, not thinking of others first. Look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. In other words, deny yourself the use of your liberties out of love to God and others. Do it for this reason. You have these liberties. Sure you do. You're strong in faith. You know what the scriptures say. Great. But why would you exercise any one of those liberties if you knew it was going to hinder somebody else or cause an offense or harm somebody else's faith? Why? There's only one reason, selfishness. You want what you want and you're going to do it even if it hurts somebody else. Selfishness. And that is sin. That is not love. And that is not giving glory to God. Look at verse 19. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up for one another. What does this tell you? It tells you that the goal of exercising your liberty in Christ is to build other people up, not make controversy, but strive for unity in the body. Sure. You know, could you imagine what would happen, you know, if, if, if I went out there and, you know, did, you know, the tattoo thing came up here in shorts and, you know, got the Mohawk and was smoking a cigarette while I preached a sermon. I mean, well, that would so defile everybody just saying it. I can see you out there going. (laughs) That would be so selfish, so carnal on my part, even though I might have liberties to do that, to do it would be so wrong and so ungodly. Because I am a leader 
And people are looking at me and there's so many people or different convictions that it would just be wrong. It would be selfish. It would be carnal to do that. So then I pursue those things which make for peace, not controversy and the building up of one another. Look at verse 20. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean. Now notice, right? He says, now don't use food to hurt anybody's faith. Now I know that everything's clean, but don't do it. That's what he keeps saying. Or do anything. Verse 21 is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. The end of verse 20. They're evil for the man who gives offense. Do you see that? If I have a liberty and I know it's my liberty and I use that liberty and it causes offense, I am the one who sins against that person in Christ, even though biblically it's okay. And there are a lot of people who say, well, I can do this. The Bible doesn't say I can't do this. This is what I want to do. This is good for me. This is a good thing for me and I'm going to do it. And I don't care if it hurts your face. I don't care if it offends you. I don't care if you, if it causes the strife between me and you, because this is my thing. That's just a sinful, selfish attitude. That's what that is. He states the same principle already stated in verse 13. Again, in verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. That's pretty clear. Anything by which your brother stumbles which includes all Christian liberties there. Look at verse 22. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction for God. You know, you, you think these liberties are fine or not? Great. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves in the area of Christian liberty. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. Here's another principle. Never exercise any liberty if it bothers your conscience. Don't do it. Not because the liberty itself is wrong, but because defiling your conscience is wrong. God has given you a conscience and he wants you to have a strong conscience, not a seared conscience. Let's just say you grew up in the church and you were, you know, grew up, uh, you know, during the depression or whatever. And, and the only people you knew who played cards were people who liked to sit up late at night, drink, swear, use the Lord's name in vain, get drunk. And play cards to pass the time away. So you were taught from an early age that card playing was sin. Now, as you've grown in the Lord and ever since then, you've grown up and you've, you've never even found cards in the Bible. And so you realize, you know, the Bible doesn't really speak against that. And you know what? That is an area of the liberty I have. But every time you even think of playing cards, all of a sudden your conscience starts bothering you. Don't play cards. Do not go against your conscience. You have to get your conscience informed to the place where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you can play cards and you can do it without defiling your conscience. Because if you go against your conscience, you're sinning. If you don't have complete faith that this is an okay thing, you're sinning. Okay, turn to 1 Corinthians 8. A little bit more to come. Now, we went fast through Romans 14. Now we're really going to go fast. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. All are about Christian liberties and how to exercise your liberties in Christ. It's a huge deal to God. Look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 8. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols. Notice here... This is Paul's new thing he's going to talk about. In that culture, this is how it worked. You have these pagan temples. People come to sacrifice animals at the temple. Well, of course, when they sacrifice, they always bring what kind of animals? The best they've got. The choicest animals. And so, of course, you know, they're the choice. they have the choice meat on them. Well, instead of burning it all up in the altar, the pagans would, you know, being wise, Butcher them all up and set up a meat shop and a barbecue hut in back of the temple. And then people could come along and, you know, get skewered, whatever meat sacrificed to idols or buy a nice juicy steak sacrificed to an idol. The money then from that would go to support the temple. 
I always find this interesting because a lot of people say, well, you know, you shouldn't support so-and-so because, you know, they're, they're supporting this unbiblical thing. Listen, all unbelievers are supporting what's unbiblical. Every time you buy gas, okay, you're supporting. All unbelievers are, live according to the God of this world and are held captive by him to do his will. And this is what Paul's talking about here. Now look at the middle of verse 4, chapter 8. We know that we all have knowledge and knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Now here he's talking about knowledge as in we know that there's no idle cooties on that meat. Okay, just because you sacrifice, you know, a piece of an animal to some carved up stump doesn't, you know, defect the meat. We all know that we all have knowledge. Okay, but the problem is having that knowledge, we can become arrogant another and say well i know this is true and so hey if it bothers you tough okay arrogance you aren't thinking of other people in other words you're not loving them then in verses two through six paul says everyone knows that an idol is nothing and that there is one true god you know we know that you know this carved stone or this carved stump or this little gold trinket isn't (laughs) isn't a deity can't eat can't talk it's just a piece of matter there's nothing you know it's nothing Okay, that's what he's saying. Look at verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Let's say a person repents of their pagan worship. They come right out of paganism. They've been enslaved. They've been worshiping these idols. They've been sacrificed to these idols. They've been engaging in these, you know, orgies and drunken fests and and all the stuff that goes with all that paganism. They've been doing that. And now that they've come to the Lord, they've turned their back on that lifestyle. They don't want to do have anything to do with drinking, with idol meat, anything. Just get it out of my life. I do not want to go there anymore. That stuff is wicked. I've been there. Okay, that's what they're thinking. And then here comes the guy with knowledge. Yeah, you know, the idol's really nothing. It's a piece of wood. And, you know, there's no idol cooties on that meat. And I can eat that. And so I don't care what this guy thinks. I mean, he needs to buck up and get the truth right. And I'm going to eat my meat. I don't care if it defiles his conscience or not. That's what he's talking about. Look at verse 8. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Paul states the truth again. Listen, there's a, there's a liberty here. You can eat that idol meat, not eat that idol meat. You know, it's okay. Look at verse 9. But take care, speaking to those who are strong in faith, that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, that is weak in faith. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined and the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. You know, you have knowledge. And so you go back behind to the, you know, the idol barbecue hut and you're back there, you know, munching down some, you know, teriyaki, whatever on a stick and you're just having lunch and you know, an idol is nothing and there's no cooties on this meat and it tastes great. And you're sitting there and all of a sudden here comes new convert so-and-so who just repented of idolatry and used to be involved in this temple and knows all the wretchedness that goes on in there and sees you not only eating meat, sacrificed to idols, and they don't know that that doesn't do anything to the meat, but to them it's bad. And they see you buying this meat and they know that money is going to support that temple and they're just like, you've got to be kidding! You have defiled their conscience! And they may think you, you Christians are hypocrites. You've destroyed their faith. Why? For a teriyaki stick. <laughs> what are you doing? We saw the same thing in Romans 14. 
Look at verse 13. Therefore, Paul says, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Principle to live by, don't do anything which causes your brother to stumble. The same thing we saw in Romans 14. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.1. A lot of people don't realize it. They think, oh, this is the chapter that you preach on when the preacher needs a raise. This is actually the chapter where Paul is using another example of a liberty he has. And actually, 8, 9, and 10 are all one unit. And Paul starts off and says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? The whole point is, is listen, guys, you know, hey, I'm the guy who's writing the bulk of the New Testament here. You know, I'm the apostle. I know what I'm free to do and what I'm not to do. I mean, I'm the guy with the truth, and you're the guys who are learning from me. I'm telling you, I am free to do these things. I'm an apostle. And then in verses 1 through 5, he establishes the fact that he is an apostle and he knows what his liberties are. Then look at verse 6. He says, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working. Here, Paul brings up another liberty, a liberty not to do secular work and to be supported by the gospel ministry. In other words, to be supported by the church and the people he ministers to and preaches the gospel to. And then he gives in verses 7 through 12, several examples or illustrations. He talks about soldiers who are supported by the government for being soldiers. He talks about the farmer who, because of their work, get to use the crops. He talks about the shepherd who get the wool and eat the meat of the sheep. He talks about the ox who threshes the grain and gets to eat while he threshes. The whole point is, listen, if I'm preaching the gospel and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm living to proclaim God's truth to other people, I should be able to receive my living from that, from the church. That's what he's arguing for. Look at the middle of verse 12. Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Paul is relating back to what happened when he first came and preached the gospel to them. And when you go into a new, you know, tribe or a new people group and they've never heard the gospel and you preach the gospel and some of them come to the Lord, you don't say, okay, now start, you know, shelling over the box because I need to do this and this is important for you. See, Paul knew that that would be a hindrance to his ministry because they, not knowing the scriptures, not knowing what God expected of them, would think, is he using us? Is he scamming us? What's going on here? And so, even though he had this liberty, in order to keep from giving an offense, he didn't exercise it. Then he says, look at verse 14, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Now he says, guess what? It's not only my liberty, it's the Lord's command. It's the Lord's command. But notice again in verse 15, but I have not, I have, I've used none of these things. I haven't exercised this right. I've done it for your sake. Paul even states that it is the Lord's will that those who proclaim the gospel should be supported in their ministry. And then in verses 15 through 18, he explains why. And then in verse 19, Paul states another key principle. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Tenth principle, you need to exercise your liberties so that it helps you lead other people to Christ. That's what you are to do. Exercise your liberties so it doesn't hinder your gospel witness. Then in verses 20 through 22, Paul speaks of trying to be like a Jew to Jews and Gentiles to Gentiles. To those who are without the laws, without the law, those under the laws, those with the law. You might be thinking, well, Jack, isn't this hypocrisy? No, this is love. This is love. Listen, if I know you just came out of a Jewish background and I know you don't know the scriptures, why would I come over there and say, here's a ham sandwich and defile your conscience? That would be mean. That would be cruel. That would be selfish. And so, hey, I know you're weak in that area. So we're having kosher dill pickles, you know, whatever. I'm going to make sure 
I don't let food, something which is so petty as food, hinder me from ministering to you or sharing the gospel with you. Look at the end of verse 20. Notice how he states why he does these. So that I may win those who are under the law. Look at the end of verse 21. So that I may win those who are without the law. Look at verses 22 through 23. To the weak I became weak. That I might I win the weak. I have become all things to all men. So that I mean by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Now, is he thinking of himself here? No, he's thinking of other people, how he can minister to other people, be a blessing to other people, reach other people for Christ. He's not thinking of himself. Oh, I have this liberty and I want to do this thing and it makes me feel good. So I'm going to do it. I don't care what you think. That's just sinful. Even though the liberty is not sinful, that attitude is. That attitude is. Then in verses 24 through 27, Paul gives several more examples of why he disciplined himself to exercise his personal liberties in deference to others. Now look at 1 Corinthians 10. In verses 1 through 11, Paul reminds the Corinthians of how the Israelites, who remember when they went to Egypt, they stayed there for several hundred years and they were engulfed in a pagan culture, an idol worshiping pagan culture. Then through the 10 plagues, they were brought out of Egypt, and then they were invited to enter into the promised land, and yet the whole generation died because they were rebellious, because they committed idolatry, immorality, and grumbled. And so, his whole point in saying this is, listen, God judged all those people who who engaged in evil, that is, violated biblical mandate. Then he says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. Now, a lot of times we just pluck this verse out of context, but what this verse is talking about is, listen, I don't care what background you came from. I don't care what kind of paganism you came out of, drugs, alcohol, whatever. You have everything you need in Christ to say no to every one of those, and you don't have to engage in them anymore. You have all the resources you need to say no to every sin. Look at verse 14. Here's his conclusion. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now look down at verses, verse 18. Paul now says, look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices shares in the altar? So now he's saying, yeah, you know, when we, when the priests in the Jewish temple, you know, uh, their sacrifices, don't they get to partake in those sacrifices? And the plan answer is, oh yeah, they all knew that. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or an idol is anything. Notice again, he affirms the truth. Listen, I know that idols are nothing. I know that you don't have to tell me that I'm telling you that I'm the apostle. But then he answers his own question verses 20 and following. No, but I say the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become shares in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Paul's whole point is this. You know, okay, you have your liberties. Here's another problem with liberties. You exercise your liberties to the place where you actually start participating in evil. That would be wrong. And don't think you can participate in evil and get away with it. You're not stronger than God. You can't resist his judgment. And so now what? Well, look down at verse 23. Paul again states his liberties. All things are lawful for me, but all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I'm not going to have my cell phone on in church. (laughs) But all things edify. Let no one seek his own good. But that of his neighbor. Is that clear? When you want to exercise your Christian liberty, don't seek your own good, but think of other people. That's what love does. 
Look at verses 25 and 28. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking any questions for conscience sake. I like that. Listen, somebody invites you over. They give you a steak. Just don't say, hey, where'd you get this? Just, just eat it. Just eat it. And he says, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking any questions for conscience sake. You even go to an unbeliever's house. They say, hey, steak. Don't say, no, where'd you get this? Just eat that baby. Verse 28, but if anyone says to you, that is this unbeliever, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. This is what Paul's saying. You have knowledge. You know, an idol is nothing. You're here. You are with an unbeliever, an idol worshiping unbeliever. He has you over to his house. He thinks idols are real. He thinks there's actually gods behind those idols. Now he sits you down and plops the steak and says, yeah, I got this at, you know, the idol butcher shop. And man, I've got this great marinade. Go for it. And this is what he's thinking. Let's see what kind of hypocrite this Christian is. I'm, oh, they repent from idolatry. And let's see if he eats this. And then you get out your knife and you pop off a corner of that thing. And and you have knowledge that this is nothing. He doesn't have that knowledge. And now he thinks you're a hypocrite. And now you can't share the gospel with him. Why? Because he thinks you're a hypocrite because you ate meat sacrificed to idols when you knew it was sacrificed to idols. You've now blown your witness because you've exercised the liberty, which has put you in his eyes in the place of the hypocrite. Look at verse 29. Right after he says, and do it for conscience sake, at the end of verse 28, he says, I mean, not your, your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning That for which I gave thanks. I'll tell you why. It's because you have not exercised your liberty in love. You have done it in selfishness, not taking into account the effects that your liberty is going to have on other people. And that is sinful. Look at verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. You know, we love to quote that verse, but a lot of people don't even know its context. It's talking about Christian liberties. Do all your Christian liberties for the glory of God, thinking of other people, thinking what's best for them, thinking how it's going to help the gospel cause and not hinder it. Then Paul summarizes all of this in verses 32 and 33. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. That's pretty clear. When you exercise your liberties, it's not just about you. If you're... Loving other people, you're going to think about them before you. Sure, you may have knowledge. Sure, it may be an okay practice. But if you do it without regard for the other person, it's carnal, sinful, wrong. So you're out there and you're engaging some sort of action, doing some sort of thing. Paul says, and you realize, you know what? There's some people here who I think have a problem with this. Stop doing it. Stop it. Do it when no one's around. Do it in the privacy of your home. Don't do it to hinder them. And you know what? It is such a shame that we've run out of time. There's some great stuff to come. Too bad. We're actually a minute over. Mm, mm. We have to ask that we still have to address some some great questions. So so do you just not do any Christian liberties? Do you do some Christian liberties? When do you do those Christian liberties? Uh, what about that text that we looked at to Jesus when he offended people by exercising his liberty? How come he was able to do that? Can we do that? What does that work? 
You know, well, 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 how are we supposed to do all this? Well, we're going to look at some more texts next week, smaller texts, not whole chapters. But here now we have a grid. We have a, a liberty truth grid. And you don't have to write these down because I'm actually going to include these in the bulletin next week and put it in your Bible. Here is a truth grid now that you can use to exercise your liberty. So let's say here you are, you know, you want to do the cigar thing or whatever it is, you know, the, I don't know, whatever, um, whatever liberty you want. You want to start worshiping on Tuesday, have the church of Tuesday or whatever. Okay. Okay. Uh, why, what is going to regulate that? Well, here it is. Here's what we've learned just from this morning. One. Don't judge others because they abstain from exercising certain Christian liberties, even if they abstain from them for the wrong reasons. Two, whatever Christian liberties you decide to exercise or not exercise, you are to do it for the Lord, not for yourself, but for his glory. Three, don't put a stumbling block on someone else's way in using your liberties. Four, don't forget that when someone thinks some sort of activity is wrong, even if it's not, to them, it's wrong. Five, always exercise your liberties in love, thinking about what is best for others, not yourself. Six, don't destroy someone else by exercising your liberties or encouraging them to exercise their liberties, contrary to what their conscience will permit. Seven, don't let what is a good thing for you be spoken of as evil by harming someone else's conscience or faith. Eight, Exercise your liberties so that they edify others, make for peace, and build others up. Nine, never exercise any liberty if it bothers your conscience for whatever is not of faith is sin. And ten, exercise your liberties in order to win other people's Christ. You can do that. Do it, man. Do it. And if you can't, any one of those things that doesn't pass, don't do it. Even though you can't, don't do it in front of anybody. That you know you're going to cause a problem with. Okay. That's for this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we are able to learn from these texts. Your word is so clear. It's amazing how much material is devoted to this one issue in the New Testament. It's obvious, very important to you. And it's very important to you that we learn these principles and apply them. So that your church will have unity and peace and that we will be building other people up and that we will not be hindering the cause of the gospel. Father, I pray that as we leave here today, these principles would be ingrained on our mind and that we would put them into action out of love for others and love for you. Father, we just pray all these things in Christ's name because we know it's his will. Amen.